Welcome to the book of Ezekiel. Who's excited? Finally something new after three years. Um, with that said, we're not actually going to read Ezekiel today. Um, no, we... <laughs> uh, here, let me start my timer. Um, yeah, we're not exactly going to be in Ezekiel today. We're going to talk about the major theme of the book of Ezekiel. We're going to go trace this theme kind of throughout Scripture. And uh, it'll kind of give us a foundation for uh, next week. We're going to watch the Bible Project videos on Ezekiel up at my place, and we're going to have a little discussion before the Super Bowl. And then the following week, we're going to get started in Ezekiel 1. So what we're doing today is we're kind of laying the foundation. We're going to talk about the theme of exile. So um, before we do that, let's just open us. Uh, let's open up in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that um, your word is... Um, a unified work for the way that it's connected. We thank you that you speak to us in all of your word. And I pray that, Lord, today as we just kind of trace this theme and we talk about this idea of exile, um, that you would um, help us to just have a deeper sense of where our home is. We, we thank you for just time to be together, for the, um, this church who lets us meet here, for the the way that you've preserved your word, and we just pray you would be here now. Speak to your people. Amen. Uh, we're going to start by talking about just the idea of home. You know, we, we all have a home somewhere. Um, deep down within all of us, we have this, like, desire uh, to nest, you know what I mean, to, like, to make a home for ourselves. I was reading about it for the sermon, and I was just kind of, you know, going around the internet finding stuff, and man, some of the stuff I read was really interesting, right? Like, I read this one thing that said, just like, talked about how the idea of a home uh, is so universal, because home is where we feel safe, right? You feel, uh, you know, it's like where you can go, you can shut off your brain, you don't have to figure out your surroundings. Every time you're in a place that's not your home, your brain is working to try to understand what's happening in the surroundings around you, especially if it's a place you don't go very often. Home is where you know where everything is, except for my house right now. Uh, it looks like a tornado hit it because <laughs> we're moving everything around. But for the most part, you know where everything is, and you can just go home, and you can feel relaxed and at peace. It offers the sense of safety and security. I read that even nomadic people, uh, like Bedouins and stuff, who move around in the desert, some in my eye. Look at me. I'm up here rubbing my eye. Get another floater trying to get it out of my eye. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, Bedouins. Um, the way they set up camp is the same everywhere they go, right? So they, they, they move around, but then they set home back up because they, and they set up a tent or whatever, and they put everything in the same spot in their tent. So no matter where they are, um, they feel like home. Uh, there was a study published uh, in the journal, I wrote this down, the Journal of Community Psychology, um, and it, this study talked about that people who move around a lot have much higher levels of depression, uh, stress, anxiety, um, and kind of what I read was there are benefits to being one of those people who travel around a lot, like there's this couple Melissa watches constantly on YouTube called Karen Nate, and they've been to a hundred and something countries over the last six years. And this one thing I read said, yeah, there's, like, benefits to that. You know, you get to see new things. It opens your mind up and that sort of thing. But there's also a huge toll to not having a place, psychological toll, that, to not having a place that you can call home. 
And this is especially true of refugees. And there's actually been a lot of writing and research and all sorts of stuff done in the last 15 years because we have a lot of refugees all over the world. And being a refugee, right, fleeing a war-torn country can be a very traumatic experience, right? Even if you make it to safety, right? You escape the war in Yemen or Syria or wherever. You, first, you probably live in a refugee camp for a while. You know, some of those refugee camps are huge and they, they come with a lot of problems and it just never feels like home. And then even if you make it out of there, you end up, you know, you're struggling to survive. You make it to some, let's say, Western countries. You make it to Sweden or whatever. There's a lot of refugees in Sweden. Um, you make it to Sweden, you get a place to live, an apartment or whatever, you still have to wake up in a small town in Sweden every single day, surrounded by light-skinned blonde people who are all like 11 feet tall, right? If you've been to anywhere with all these Nordic people or Scandinavian people, um, they all live in the Midwest now too. If you ever go to the Midwest, everybody's like 11 feet tall. Um, they don't speak the language that you speak. They don't sell the food that you're used to. Nothing that you used to watch is on TV anymore. You don't get to listen to your music. That's why a lot of refugees suffer from PTSD. Uh, they suffer from depression and in, like an intense sense of, like a lot of the counseling that goes into helping refugees is the same kind of stuff that they do um, with people who are grief-stricken because of a loss of a family member or whatever. This is why we have the word homesick. Right, because people long for home. Whether you're just home, you're away from home for a vacation or for a while, or you uh, are a refugee fleeing the war in Yemen, right? you're going to experience some level of homesickness. And uh, researchers found that the same part of your brain that kind of fires when you're homesick is the same part of your brain uh, that fires when you're anxious, right? when you're struggling with like a deep sense of stress and anxiety. And I mean, I kind of get this, you know, I was reading about this a lot this week. I kind of get this, but let's be honest. I'm not the guy that gets homesick. You know why I don't get homesick? Because I never leave home, right? I've <laughs> never lived more than three miles from the hospital where I was born. I have literally never been away from the Bay Area for more than two and a half weeks. Most and I were talking about what's the longest I've been away. I think my entire life, two and a half weeks is in one stint is the most when we were going around Europe. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I kind of get it. But you know the feeling when you are on a long trip, my two and a half week trip, right? When you're on a long trip, get back from Europe or wherever, and you walk into your door, it's especially great if you cleaned your house before you left. A big tip right there, okay? You come home, you close the door, you put your suitcase down, and then you hit your own bed. You know how good that feeling is to just hit, you know, uh, being away and missing home? This is such a strong, like our... Our tie to a place that we call home is so strong. Um, you remember I told you every sermon illustration for quite a while is going to be Lord of the Rings now? Okay, so here's what happens. In Lord of the Rings, there's a part at the end, the ring falls in the fire with uh, Gollum or whatever, the, you know. And um, uh, Frodo and Sam, they're sitting on that rock. If you can picture this, if you've seen the movie. And the whole world is collapsing around them. They're like in this volcano kind of thing, right? And there's all this lava flowing everywhere. And they've already talked about we're not going to get to go home. You know, they do. I don't know. It makes it real dramatic there, Tolkien. But um, they're laying on this rock, and they think they're about to die. They think they're about to get sucked into the lava and all this stuff before the eagles rescue them. Which, by the way, why couldn't the eagles just take them there in the first place? Save a whole three books? 
Anyway, that's a side note. Uh, so the, before the eagles get them, and they're laying on this rock, and they think they're about to die. And Sam, I wrote this down. I went and looked it up. Uh, Sam looks over at Frodo. Sorry, Frodo looks over at Sam, and he says, Sam, I can see the Shire. He starts listing stuff, the Brandywine River, Bag End. He starts going through stuff. And then Sam starts crying about the hobbit girl he wanted to marry. Right, so they're about to die. They're floating on this thing. And what are they thinking about? Not, I wonder if what's about to happen to us when we fall into this lava is going to be super painful. That's probably what I would be thinking about. Mm, this does not look like fun. Or is there a way we can get out of it? No, they sit there and they have this homesick moment. When things go wrong, that's what we do, right? We think about home. This happened to me one of the other times I was gone from home for a while. It was like a two-week motorcycle trip in 2020. And if you remember, I know a lot of you know about that trip because I went down to Texas and then up into Denver and over the Rockies and home. It was, a long, it was the longest bike trip I've ever done. And at one point, I was literally the furthest away from San Francisco I've ever been on the motorcycle. It was right, and I did a big kind of circle. It was right before I turned left to go north. So I was like at the very corner of how far I was ever going to be away from San Francisco on the motorcycle. And I was in Texas, and you guys, Texas is hot. And it was very hot, and my motorcycle broke. And so I pulled over on the side of the freeway, and I have my carburetor out on a towel in the side of the freeway, in the baking hot 100 and something degree sun with no shade anywhere. And I'm roasting to death and I can't figure out why my bike won't turn back on. And that's what I felt. I thought, I should have just stayed home for two weeks. <laughs> what am I doing out here in Texas in the middle of nowhere? And that's like one of the only times I've ever been like homesick like that on a motorcycle trip was when everything went wrong. Scripture tells us that there's a strong reason that we have this sense of sort of building a home, this idea of nesting, and then feeling homesick when we're away from our homes, right? The story of Scripture tells us that what's going on underneath all of that is the idea, right? What's going on underneath the idea of me missing my apartment on Clay Street, right? Something, there's something deep, deep down. And when we open up the Scripture, the story goes like this. Uh, God creates the world. Let me make my font bigger here. Doo -doo -doo. I can't hardly read my notes. There we go. Uh, let me scroll now because it lost my place in my notes. Yeah, okay. So we open up the Bible, and we see that God created the world. And uh, he takes Adam and Eve in this beautiful before the world is fallen. And where does he put them? What's the place called? Eden. The what of Eden? The Garden of Eden. Have you ever thought about that? Why doesn't it say the Land of Eden? The Valley of Eden. The Mountains of Eden. Whatever. Have you ever thought about the word garden? What's the difference between a garden and a forest? Cultivated. Yeah. Right? Somebody put that together. It's nice. Uh, there's less bears to eat your face. Right? I'm not a big fan of the bears. Uh, Anyway, it, it, it's the garden was specifically created for Adam and Eve. Eden was our home. That's the idea. God built this beautiful world, and then within that world, he specifically cultivated a garden for Adam and Eve to live. But we got evicted. Didn't pay the mortgage, you know, didn't pay the, the lease or whatever, the rent. Uh, and in Eden, you know the story, we'll get into this more, the whole book of Ezekiel, but Mankind rebelled, and we told God, I don't want you to be in charge. I want to be in charge. 
and we got the boot. Uh, we got the boot from Eden, and we're actually going to talk about this a bunch when we do Ezekiel one and we talk about the cherubim and all that. You guys watch Friends? Anybody watch Friends? Yeah, aren't you guys watching Friends still? Anyway, there's an episode of Friends. I'm going to spoil an episode, so don't get too mad, Grace. I don't know if you've seen the one. Have you seen the chocolate chip cookie one yet? With Phoebe. Anyway, uh, there's one where Phoebe gives her grandmother's, wants to give her grandmother's chocolate chip cookie recipe to Monica, but for some reason they don't have the recipe. I don't remember. And so what happens is they spend the entire episode, they have, but they have an actual cookie. So they taste the cookie, and then Monica tries to recreate it and tries to recreate it, and they never get it right, and one of them makes Ross sick, and they're going through them all. And then at the end of it, they find out that her recipe was just from the back of the chocolate chips. Right, you remember? Okay. So uh, that episode, though, the whole episode, they have the taste of the real cookie, and then they try to recreate what's going on. That's basically a very good illustration for the story of all of humanity, right? We have this sort of flavor in our mouth. We remember what this cookie tastes like. We remember what Eden was like as a people, and we long for it. Um, and we want to go back there, but we don't know how to make it. We lost the recipe. And so what we do is we try all these fake versions. We, we long for utopia, right? We have all these ideas of how the world will get back to the way it's supposed to be. And we build beautiful cities like San Francisco. And it really is a wonderful city. But you just take one walk around, and it's pretty easy to go, boy, this sure isn't the Garden of Eden. This sure is not the way that it's supposed to be. And then we create a home for ourselves. And I really like my place. It's my home. It's our family's home. Right? It's the place that heaven is going to remember. and is, right? They're going to remember growing up there. But it sure is not Eden, especially right now because of how many boxes we have everywhere and everything strewn along the whole place. But this longing for the Eden, right? this theme of longing for Eden and longing for home and being homesick is a major theme in the scriptures. And so what I want to do is I just want to tell you about this and do a little bit of a walkthrough uh, this story of home and exile through the Bible. Right, so after the Garden of Eden, right, we get kicked out. And do you know the next part of Genesis? What happens next? There's the flood, that whole stuff. What's the next part of the book of Genesis after the flood and Babel? Who's the next main character for most of the book of Genesis? Abraham. I think I heard somebody say it. Right, so generally, when I bring up the covenant with Abraham uh, and the promise that God made him, I focus on the part where it points to Jesus through you, Everybody will be blessed. But the covenant of Abraham was more than just that, right? It actually shows up in a few different spots. He doesn't want to know about Ezekiel. Uh, <laughs> it shows up in a few different spots. One is Genesis 12. The other one is 15. I want to read to you from Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Catamanites, uh, the Hittites, I know that one, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Right? So God tells Abraham, as part of this covenant, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give your people all this land. And when this happens, like when God makes this promise first in Genesis 12, this is the story of Abram. Right? And then Abraham, I'm going to call him Abraham. He's living in Mesopotamia, and he's a pagan guy. And God comes to him and says, hey, you work for me now. And Abraham says, all right, deal. And he tells him, I need you to go very far away from your homeland. And 
you know, in a clan, in a, a culture that's all about family and everything, he kind of ditches his whole family and says, okay, gets all his people and they all head out. And uh, this, then he makes this promise to him, right? I need you to go to this land. You're not going to possess this land. It's not going to be yours. You're going to live here for a while. You're going to bounce around. But eventually your children and their children and all these folks, there's going to be a great nation that comes from you is going to possess this land. And then Abraham dies. And, you know, he has Isaac, the miracle child. And um, uh, uh, actually, wait, I'm not going to get to that next. First, what I want to do is jump to, I'm, I'm changing this up a little bit here in my head. All right, so in the book of Deuteronomy then, so talking about the covenant, God makes this covenant with Abraham first. I'm going to give your kids this land. Then what he tells them is, you know, the whole exodus happens, all that stuff. The book of Deuteronomy is right at the end of the time of Moses. Moses gets all the people together, and he says, hey, guys, uh, I'm about to kick the bucket, and I'm not going to get to see the promised land. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you one last sermon. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And in this sermon, we're going to come up with the deal. A covenant is like a contract. And so a contract is you do this, I do this, this is how it works, right? And so in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, at the end of it there, there's a part where Moses sits the people down, and he says to them, okay, here's what's going to happen if you follow the covenant. Here's the stipulations. And here's what's going to happen if you don't follow the covenant. Now, do you want to sign the papers? And the people sign the papers, and then they go into the promised land with Joshua. So what I want to do today is I want to read to you the blessings and the curses. This is a very long chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, this is this chapter is 68 verses. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to read a pretty big chunk here. So if you, this is where you can click, I think. Wait, let me click over to it. Wait, no, uh, that one. Okay. Um, first, this is the blessing of the covenant. Uh, verse one. How far am I going here? One, two, thirteen. Okay. Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and carefully and are careful to follow all his commands I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. So the first thing he says is if you follow this, if you, if you stay faithful to the covenant, you guys are going to be head and shoulders above all these other nations around you. All the blessings will come over you and take you because you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. That's nice. You have blessed baskets. Uh, you will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. Now, okay, real quick, this verse 7. The Lord will defeat your enemies. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. You know why? Because we live in a land of relative security. How many of you worry about your personal safety constantly? Not really. I mean, you know, stuff happens, but we don't, we're not as stressed about this. But this was a warring culture, right? And these clans and these people, they fought each other constantly. And the idea that I'm going to die from old age and not from some group of other people coming in and killing me was not really the thought that they had. And so for God to say, I'll defeat your enemies for you, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, they will march out uh, against you from one direction and flee from you in seven directions. The Lord will grant you a blessing on your barns and everything you do. He will bless you in the land uh, the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you 
as his holy people, as he swore, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the peoples of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. The Lord will make you, pro- make, <clears throat> make you prosper abundantly with offspring, the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open for you his abundant storehouse, the sky, to give your land rain in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend many, lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will only move upward and never downward if you listen to the Lord your God's commands I am giving you today and are careful uh, to follow them. So basically, do you see the, the positive part of the covenant? is pretty sweet. This is what's going to happen. This is for this specific group of Israel, these, these people in this nation. If you sign this deal with God and you follow him the way that he asks you to follow him and you devote your life to him the way he asks you to devote your life to him, you're going to have all these blessings. It's going to rain when you need it to rain. Your enemies are not going to be able to subdue you. Um, you your barns are going to be full. You're going to have tons of kids. It's going to be great. It's not going to be Eden but it's going to be close. That's what he promises the people. But here's the thing. That, that's a pretty great promise, what he, he says to these people. But in the same level of greatness that the, the good part is, he takes that and he applies it to the, this is what's going to happen if you don't uh, follow the promise. Now, this is, I'm glad the kids are outside. This is a PG-13 Bible study right here. All right, uh, let's see. Let me flip over real quick. Verse 15 It says this, but if you do not obey the Lord your God and carefully follow in all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. So there are too many to list. So we are going to jump down to verse 25. Uh, Let's see, how far am I going? 25, okay, we're going to read a bunch here. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So now the opposite. Not I'm going to let you... Let your enemies destroy. I'm going to cause your enemies to come and destroy you. You will march out against them from one direction, but flee from them in seven directions. So the exact flip of the other promise. You will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your corpses will be food for the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth and uh, with no one uh, to scare them away. So the idea, remember, in this culture of not having a proper burial was a huge deal to these folks. And so for God to say, you're going to die in battle and the birds are going to eat you was a pretty scary thing. A verse, where was I? 27. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, tumors, a festering rash, and scabies from which you cannot be cured. That does not sound like fun. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and mental confusion, so that at noon you will grope as a blind person gropes in the dark. You will not be successful in anything you do. You will only be oppressed and robbed continually, and no one will come to help you. You will be engaged to a woman, but another man will rape her. You will build a house and not live in it. You will plant a vineyard and not enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat any of it. Your donkey will be taken away from you and not returned to you. Your flock will be given to your enemies, and no one will help you. Your sons and daughters will be given to another people, while your eyes grow weary looking for them every day. But you will be powerless to do anything. A people you don't know will eat your land's produce and everything that you have labored for. You will only be oppressed and crushed continually. 
You will be driven mad by what you see. The Lord will afflict you with painful and incurable boils. Man, this, he comes back to the boils again. That sounds tough. On your knees and on your thighs, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king that you have appointed to a nation neither of your ancestors have known. All right, this is important. This is one of our key verses. I'm going to read that again. The Lord will bring you and your king that you have appointed to a nation that neither of your ancestors have known. And there you will worship other gods of wood and stone. So what God says is, this land that I'm giving you, I'm going to take it away. Somebody is going to come and they are going to kidnap an entire group of people. Uh, let's see, where was I? Verse 37. You will become an object of horror and scorn and ridicule among the peoples where the Lord uh, will drive you. You will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little because locusts will devour it. You'll plant and cultivate vineyards, but not drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your territory, but not to moisten your skin with oil because uh, your olives will drop off. Your father, your father's sons and daughters... You will father sons and daughters, but they will not remain yours because they will be taken prisoners. Again, more somebody's going to come and they're going to take you prisoners. Buzzing insects will take possession of all your trees and your land's produce. The resident alien among you will rise higher and higher above you while you sink lower and lower. He will lend to you, but you won't lend to him. He will be the head and you will be the tail. So again, it's the flip of what he said in the, the blessing that... You're going to have so much money you can lend to other people. He says, now that's going to flip. Verse 40, where was I? 45. All these curses will come, pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed, since you did not obey the Lord your God and keep the commandments and statutes I gave you. These curses will be a sign and a wonder against you and your descendants forever, because you didn't serve the Lord your God with, a, with joy and a cheerful heart, even though you have an abundance of everything. You will serve your enemies that the Lord will send against you in famine and thirst, nakedness, and a lack of everything. He will place an iron yoke on your neck until he, has, uh, until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation from far away, from the ends of the earth, to swoop down on you like an eagle, a nation whose language you won't understand, a ruthless nation, showing you no respect, showing no respect for the old and not sparing the young. They will eat the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, fresh oil, young of your herds, newborn of your flocks, until they cause you to perish. When they siege you, besiege you with, uh, within all your city gates until your hide and fortified walls that you trust in come down throughout the land. They will besiege you within all your city gates throughout the land that the Lord your God is giving you. All right, this is the part where I'm glad the kids are outside. This is what God says. You will eat your offspring, the flesh of your sons and daughters of the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the hardship that the enemy imposes you. The most sensitive and refined man among you will look grudgingly at his brother, the wife he embraces, and the rest of his children, refusing to share with any of them his children's flesh that he will eat because he has nothing left during the siege and the hardship your enemy imposes on you in your own towns. The most sensitive and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her refinement and sensitivity will begrudge the husband she embraces, her son and her daughter, and the afterbirth that comes from between her legs and the children she bears 
uh, because you will secretly eat them for lack of anything during the siege and hardship your enemy imposes on you within your city gates. And he goes on, but that's a part. Okay, so basically, this is pretty brutal. This is, God is not playing around. And this is very important to set the stage for... Um, to set the stage for the book of Ezekiel. Because what God does, he comes and he says to the people, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to lay it out. I'm not going to pretend. None of this should surprise you. If you follow me with a joyful and cheerful heart, if you let me be your Lord as a people, as a nation, this is what's going to happen to you. Great things. Barns will be full. You're going to have tons of money. You're going to no enemies. It's, it's going to be great. But if you don't, this is, this is what's going to happen. A people is going to come in, and they're going to siege your city. And then the re- a lot of the language that's used there is just very common language for what a siege looked like in the ancient world. And what a siege was, was, you know, you had a walled city. They would come, and they would surround your city, and you would run out of food. And you would start eating each other, Donner Party style. Uh, and it was horrible. And this is what happens during the siege of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that throughout the book of Ezekiel. But the big part of this is these people are going to come. They're going to siege your city. And the worst part is they're going to pick you up and they're going to move you. They're going to take you. They're going to take your kids. And they're going to take you to a land that you don't know with a language that you don't speak. And they're going to put you back to work. It's going to be a reverse version of the Exodus. Right? And so after Abraham and the whole deal, right, you know, the, the, the people, they go through uh, after the Exodus and after, um, sorry, not Abraham, after Moses and all that, uh, the people go into the promised land and we see, um, uh, what do we see with the people, right? We see rebellion for 40 years. They ignore God. They don't follow him the way that they should. And then they start to go into the land of promise with Joshua. So this group of people hears this sermon. They sign the deal. Okay, this is what we're going to do. They start heading into the land. Uh, but if you remember, when Abraham gets the promise, I'm going to give you the land from where? The river in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. This massive bit of land is the promised land. So the people, they come into the promised land, and the book of Joshua goes like this. They have a bunch of miraculous victories. Everything is going phenomenally. They're taking bits of land and bits of land, and then they just stop. That's enough. We're done. This is enough homeland for us. And so right away we see the people are not faithful to the covenant that God had them uh, sign at Mount Sinai. And then the next part of the Bible is what? The book of Judges. And the book of Judges goes like this. The people rebel against God. He sends a foreign oppressor. They come. They oppress the people in the land. The people repent and cry out, Lord, save us. He sends a savior who's always imperfect. And then... The people are saved, and then they rebel again. And it just goes in the same cycle for 450 years. And then after that, we have the period of the kings. Now, let's ask this question. Were the people faithful to the covenant during the period of the kings? No, the major theme of the period of the kings is what we call syncretism. Uh, And syncretism is just big, fancy theological words for mixing two things together. So it wasn't that they didn't worship Yahweh God. They did, kind of but they also worshiped him with all these other gods at the same time. And one of the ways that all the kings are judged in the book of Kings. Yeah, he was a good king. He did pretty good, but he didn't remove the high places, which was this pagan practice of the higher up we get, the closer we are to God. 
right? And then we have guys like Jeroboam who split the kingdom. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they split the kingdom into two. Jeroboam takes 10 of the tribes and creates Israel in the north. Rehoboam is the king of Judah in the south. And what Jeroboam is scared, well, if everybody has to go into the other kingdom to worship, it's going to destabilize my kingdom. So I'm going to take these two sites and I'm going to make my own temple, right? My Safeway brand version of the religion of God. And that's what he does. He sets up a golden calf in these two temples. And then, you know, the whole thing continues. All the kings of Israel are terrible. Most of the kings of Judah are terrible. Another big theme is that they're constantly trusting in um, other nations to protect them. God will say, if you follow the covenant, I will protect you from your enemies. And they say, okay, that sounds good, but we're also going to sign an alliance with Egypt just in case. And God says, that's not part of the covenant. And he gets real mad. And they just go through this. At one point, they even forgot the entire law of God. So this king, this one guy, Josiah, he finds the law, and everybody's like, I've never seen this before, like the Bible. I've never seen this Bible that we're supposed to follow. And they have corrupt king after corrupt king. They persecute the prophets like Elisha and Elijah and all these guys, Jeremiah. And they're, uh, these prophets are crying out, you guys are unjust um, to uh, the poor, to the alien, these people that you're supposed to take care of, these poor and these widows. So basically, the story of the book of Samuel, the story of the book of Kings, it plays out like a slow unfolding of the people trying to go through a checklist of every different way that they can break the covenant. That God told them, if you break the covenant, here's the deal. If you follow the covenant, here's the deal. And so what does God do? Finally, he triggers article whatever, article, you know, something for the exile. And so the northern kingdom, remember there's two kingdoms at this point, the northern kingdom gets taken into exile. Let me tell you the story of how that happened. So this was the mid-8th century B.C., Uh, the king of the southern kingdom became a vassal state of this massive empire, the Assyrian Empire. And what this did was, it means the the two Israel kingdoms, right? Israel and Judah, they weren't getting along. So when the southern kingdom became friends with Assyria, this giant kingdom in the north, all of a sudden that made them enemies of Israel in the north. And that sort of triggered a war with those two that ended in the deportation of all of the people of Israel. And it happened in two stages. Um, During the reign of a guy named King, uh, let's see what I wrote down, Pekka, Pekka, how do you say that? Does anybody know? Pekka, P-E-K-A-H, I just realized I've only ever read his name like a hundred times, of Israel. Uh, During his reign, there was this guy named Tiglath Pileser III. Write that down. Great baby names. Anybody looking? Um, He invaded Samaria and deported a whole bunch of people. This was the first round of deportations. Um, Then a guy named Hosea Hosea, uh, succeeded him, succeeded that king who died. Um, And then stage two happened a few years later. In 727, another Assyrian king, I wrote this down, Shalmaneser V, uh, the son of Tiglath-Pileser, right? Uh, He became king of Assyria. And he came in and they went to war. And what happened was they paid tribute for a little while, and then they stopped paying the tribute. Uh, And he eventually rebelled, and they sieged the city, and they destroyed everything, and they took everybody in the kingdom, and they sent them into uh, exile. And what's the, the Assyrians were genius, and they were wickedly evil all at the same time. This is the genius. So don't, oops, don't think that I'm uh, condoning this, but it's genius what they would do. They realized at one point, every time we destroy a kingdom of people and we take all their people captive, 
uh, if we take them all together, they get strong again, and then they rebel. So what we got to do, we got to take them all and separate them so that within a generation or two, they've lost all their customs, they've lost their language, and they just sort of disappear into the sea of Assyrian people. And so that's what they did. All of the people in the, southern or the northern kingdom of Israel, this is what happened to them. The 10 tribes just disappeared into the world of Assyria. Well, the southern kingdom, they held up for a little while longer, but it was the same story. Faithless kings, faithless people. Um, Isaiah predicted it. Jeremiah was a prophet while this was all happening. Um, but eventually, the Assyrians fell to the Babylonians. We did a long time ago, the book of Nahum. That's that whole story. So the Babylonians come in, and uh, what happens is first, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, I call him King Nebi, you know this guy, uh, he goes to war with Egypt. And one of the problems with where Israel is, it's like a good thing and it's a terrible thing. It's right in the middle of everything. Oops. So to get anywhere in the ancient world, you had to go through Israel, right? It's, and so all these countries that were constantly fighting each other, they'd go, they'd fight Egypt. This is what Babylon did. They fought Egypt, and then they were on their way home after defeating the Egyptians, and they were like, you know what? I'm going to defeat these guys too just because on the way home. So they defeated the city of Jerusalem, you know, and they took a bunch of people they, they started to go to war, and they surrendered and said, here, take a bunch of people captive. That's the first round of captives. That's Daniel. You know Daniel? Lion's Den, the whole thing, right? Rack, Shack, and Benny. You know these three guys? That's the Veggie Tales names. Uh, what's their real names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, so these are like higher up rich people. They get taken to Babylon. Uh, then there's phase two. So um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar fought Egypt again, but this time he took heavy losses, and um, the Je Judean king Jehoiakim uh, started looking at Nebuchadnezzar and like, he just lost this big battle. I bet he's not going to be strong enough to mess with us anymore. So I'm going to stop paying my tribute. So that's what he did. He stopped paying a tribute. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty mad. And if you can't beat your main rival, that's what, that was Egypt. He's like, you know what? I might as well beat somebody. And so he went to Jerusalem. And in 597, Jerusalem surrendered. And Jehoiakim was killed and replaced with this guy named Jehoiachin, who was just an 18-year-old kid. And Jehoiachin didn't last very long. He was kind of a loser. Um, and eventually, he lost that battle. And him and a bunch of his family were all taken captive to Babylon. Uh, that second group of captives that were taken to Babylon, that's where Ezekiel was. He was in that group of people. So one day, he was in his house, and some Babylonian soldiers came in and saw that he was a priest and said, you know what, I bet this guy's pretty important. Put him in cuffs. We don't know, you know, he was 25 at the time that this happened, so he probably was married already. Took his family and then marched him on, I mean, really what was like the original Trail of Tears, right, across the desert to Babylon. That was, I think it's like 1,400 miles, right, this walk. It has the crow flies. They actually, I think, went around. So it's, even, it's a long walk, right, and a lot of people died on the way. Phase three happens uh, so most of the book of Ezekiel, a big chunk of the book of Ezekiel, happens between that, first ex that second exile and when they finally, the city is destroyed, right? So eventually, in chapter 24 of Ezekiel, the city is destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar gets real mad, and uh, the guy that he had placed up as the puppet king rebels against him, and he was like, you have got to be kidding me with these guys. And so he went in, and Jehoiachin, he took him, uh, sorry, there was another king at that time. His name was, um, uh, after Jehoiachin died, he set up a guy named Zedekiah. Zedekiah rebelled and said, um, 
I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to pay my tribute either. Because all these false prophets were whispering in his ear, God will always protect you. And Jeremiah was like, no, he won't. And so then Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he does not protect, the, God does not protect the city of Jerusalem. And the city falls. Uh, Zedekiah makes a run for it because he stinks, right? He doesn't stand with his people. He gets all his family together. They make a run for it. And Nebuchadnezzar catches up to him outside the city. And this is really messed up. This is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He takes him and he gets all his kids in front of him. And, you know, Zedekiah is in chains and he kills all the kids. And then he takes Zedekiah and he pokes his eyes out so that the last thing he ever saw was his kids dying. And then the rest of the captives all get taken to Babylon, except for a few folks who were left behind, and they put up a puppet and governor. Now, here's what happens. The exile lasts, we're not going to get into this a ton now because we're running out of time, but about 70 years. And the people do eventually get to come home. I'm spoiling the end of the book of Ezekiel. The people do get to come home. This is the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But do you know what happens when they come home? It's not home. They get back and they rebuild the temple. And there's a couple of old people there who remember the first temple from 70 years ago when they were kids. And what do the old people do? Does anybody know when they see the temple? They cry because it sucks. They cry because it sucks. <laughs> right? This is not Solomon's temple. And they start weeping. Right? Have you ever gotten something that you really, really wanted and then were totally let down? Can I tell you what's mine right now? Okay, last, I don't know, fall, summer, I ordered a Kindle Scribe. I was very excited about this. Big Kindle, you can write on it, okay? Then they all came out at the beginning of December, and my order got messed up. So I was like one of the first people to buy it, but I started seeing all these reviews because everybody was getting their shipped. I was so mad. Where's my Kindle? I've been waiting six months for this thing or whatever. And everybody, oh, I love it. It's the best thing ever, you know. And, and I was, I, the anticipation built even more. And then I got it two weeks late. And I finally got it in the middle of December. This thing is a piece of garbage. Any giant book, it just crashes. And it won't open a big book. Half of the books that I'm supposed to be able to write hand notes, like I wanted to write on my Bible, they don't work. Right? This thing is a total letdown. I waited months and months and months to be totally let down. They waited 70 years to finally come home. And when they get home, they go, it's not really home. And then when you pick up the story in the New Testament, what's happening? They're home. They're back in Israel. But is it home? No, because why? They're, it's occupied. They're not in charge. And so uh, what the, this theme of this idea of anticipation, the people are waiting for this Messiah to come, and part of what they wanted the Messiah to do was kick out the occupiers so we could, what, build a kingdom like when David and Solomon were kings. They have this idea that they think if we go back to that time, we'll be home. The exile will be over. But what the New Testament writers do, they come and they pick up the story and they say, no, 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 no. You can't go back to David. You need to go back to Eden. You need to go back even further. And until you get to go back even further, right, until we get into the new heavens and new earth, until we get to a restored Eden, we're always going to be homesick. Because this world that we live in, it's not our home. Right? We are exiles. You know, uh, let's see. Um, Peter says this, right, when he's writing his epistle. Uh, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. 
So you guys are exiles who have been dispersed. James says this too, right? James, a servant of God, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That's a way to say, like the church, you guys are scattered around, um, and this is not your home. And so what we're supposed to do with this theme of exile and this theme of homesickness, we're supposed to ask, where do we find the fulfillment? When are we not going to be exiles? When are we not going to be in Babylon? And the answer is in eternity, right? That's the gospel story. Creation, fall, restoration, and eventually fulfillment, recreation, whatever you want to say for that last one. Um, The end of the book of Revelation, we're told about the resurrection of God's people, the restoration of creation. But here's what's interesting. God doesn't take us back to Eden. Have you ever thought about that at the end of the story? We don't go back to Eden. A lot of the Eden imagery is used uh, to describe the world to come. But what we learn is that the new heavens and the new earth is a re- like a restoration of the world we have now. It's the world we have now, but better. It's no longer a garden, but it's a city. We go from a garden to a city. And when we get there, we're going to be overwhelmed by three things. And this is how we're going to end. The first is the place. We're going to be overwhelmed by the place. And we're going to have this feeling. You're going to walk into the new heavens and new earth in your resurrected body. And one of the first things you're going to think is, I'm finally home. Every time I was on vacation and I missed my house, Every time I had that feeling of homesickness was me longing for right now, right here and right now. Like in my life right now, I like going outside, I guess. I don't know, not as much as some people, but creation's pretty cool, right? Bears, not so much. I like creation, but creation is at odds with me. My body is falling apart. Bears trying to eat me. Weather sucks. Earthquakes are scary. But there, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be home. It's going to be perfect. I used to have this suit back in the day. I had one suit. Now I'm fancy. I have two suits that I don't wear. Back in the day, I had one suit. I'm not Hostway. I don't suit it up every day. Right? He's so fancy. No, I had this suit, and I needed it to do a wedding or something. I don't remember why I bought it. Funeral, maybe. I don't remember. Uh, But we were broke, and I was a youth pastor, and I didn't want to spend a lot of money on a suit, so I went and got a suit. And uh, it was my first suit, and I was stupid. I didn't know anything about suits. So it was one of these suits that looks like your dad's suit. You know what I mean? You know those ones? Big and baggy. I didn't have it fitted because that was extra money. You know? (laughs) Right? This suit, I was swimming in this thing. And actually, if you ever see, uh, if Gabby ever posts a wedding picture on her anniversary or something, that's the suit I was wearing when I did their wedding. It looks terrible, right? Okay, and then later on, though, I got another suit that was nice, and it was fitted, and they tailored it, the whole thing, right? That suit fits me. Like, it's, oh, this, again, that suit, it's like a completely different experience. That's one of the first things we're going to realize when we get to the new heavens and new earth. Oh, this is, a, this is how it's supposed to be. I didn't even realize how baggy that first suit was when I had it and how terrible it looked. <laughs> but now that I'm in this nice suit, right, now that I'm in this world that's built for me, oh, this is home. The second thing that we're going to be blown away by is um, our relationships with each other. A while ago, uh, John and Kayla, Melissa and I went to a concert. Dashboard Confessional and Andrew McMahon. That was a great concert, huh? That was pretty fun. Anyway, one of Andrew McMahon's songs uh, from his band Jack's Mannequin, Dark Blue. The chorus goes, dark blue, dark blue. Have you ever been alone in a crowded room? You know that, you've, you know that feeling? 
Uh, I had this yesterday. We were at this birthday party. I didn't know anybody for the kids, you know, all these other parents and stuff. And I was like, nobody's talking to me. I'm alone in a room full of people. Um, that's a great portrayal of kind of how broken our relationships are. We should love and support each other, but we don't. We tear each other down and we're mean. And we do selfish things. We build ourselves up at the cost of others. I think that's another way that we feel homesick. Every time that happens, every time you do that to somebody else, we should go, boy, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. I am in exile in a broken and a fallen world. In eternity, because our sin is gone, those relationships are going to be perfect. You're not going to have to wonder, gee, I wonder what that person said to somebody else about me. I wonder what they're really thinking about me. Right? In eternity, all that is going to be fixed, open and honest. Those relationships will be perfect. And then the third and obvious final one is our relationship with the Lord will be fixed. Right? Uh, Genesis 3.8. I, I love this verse, but I also, you know, this is right before, this is after the fall, but right before we find out about it. Uh, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is a picture of what God would do before the fall. He would just hang out with people, with Adam and Eve. And they would sit there. I don't think they had coffee yet, so I don't know if the world was perfect or Coke or anything, right? Uh, but they would have a Coke and they would sit and they would relax in the cool of the day. This is the biggest homesickness that we have. Humanity is not just trying to fix our relationships with each other. We're not just trying to get back to a place. We're trying to get back to a creator. And we can't do it and we can't figure it out. But thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can experience and we will experience that intimacy with our creator in a whole new way. And we're going to get to eternity. We're going to sit down with Jesus and have a cup of coffee and go, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what I've always been longing for. And so we have this theme of exile, right? It starts with getting kicked out of the garden, and it ends with coming back into the new Jerusalem, into the new heaven and earth. And there's this sort of thread that goes all through Scripture, to Abraham and the, the, the covenant promises and to, uh, you know, the exile and Ezekiel and to the New Testament. This thread goes all along. And this is why I wanted to start with this as a theme for the book of Ezekiel. Right, because this idea of exile is the major theme of Ezekiel. The people have broken the covenant, they're in exile, and they want to know why. But that thread throughout the scripture, the story of Ezekiel plucks the middle of that thread. And to really understand the book of Ezekiel, we need to understand that that's where that happens. And that the theme of exile, we can kind of pluck that thread all the way along until we get to the new heavens and the new earth. And so while a lot of the book of Ezekiel is, A, going to seem really mean, God did what to these people? Now we know why. We'll know why. And a lot of it's going to seem like, what does this have to do with me? I am not in exile in Babylon. So what we do is we just pluck the thread, we go down a little, and we go, well, right now, you're in exile in San Francisco, in a way. And the same hope that Ezekiel had is the same hope that we have. And that's what we're going to read about for 48 chapters. We're going to go a lot faster than Luke, but 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Let's pray.